Hello, my name is Lance Weiler. I'm a storyteller and director of the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. You're listening to Columbia DSL's Sandbox, a podcast where we explore new forms and functions of storytelling. I want to thank Lauren for coming and joining us today. I think what what we want to try to do in this conversation is I think there's a couple different things that we're going to kind of talk about. We're going to talk about the work itself, but we're also going to talk categorically about how this work can make its way into the world and what is it like to curate this work. How do you support it? How can you allow audiences to access it or participate in it and to look at some of the challenges and the complexity of that? But before we dive into some of those topics, I'm wondering, Lauren, if maybe you could give a little bit of a background. And I think your title is kind of interesting, you know, because you're a senior programmer of film and immersive. So I'll pass you this great mic. and you can... <laughs> Sure. So as Lance mentioned, that's my title, uh, senior programmer of film and immersive. And uh, it really kind of speaks to what we try to do at Tribeca, I think. Um, you know, for those of you who um, are familiar with the festival or maybe not familiar with the festival, we, uh, we started just in the wake of 9-11 and our founders, Jane Rosenthal and Robert De Niro, um, had the idea that they wanted to kind of um, use art as a means of healing uh, that particular community uh, after such a, a terrible act. And so it started as a film festival, but over the years it's continued to expand and evolve into what I like to think of more as a storytelling festival. And part of that just really comes from where the creators have taken us over these past 17 years. Um, and so that's why, you know, with, with film, we have other things like uh, new online work, which is, um, you know, a, a section that, that is celebrating pieces that are meant to be consumed online. Uh, we have television or long-form episodic storytelling, short-form episodic storytelling, and then immersive, which is my baby. I love everything about uh, immersive storytelling. And that started uh, in the context of Tribeca in 2012, um, my co-curator, Ingrid Kopp, started a, uh, a program called Storyscapes, which was our transmedia program at the time. And it was really just about um, people using technology to uh, create moments of interactive storytelling. Uh, it sort of continued to blossom as technology can continue to evolve. And we really were focusing for some time on virtual reality uh, because it was really, really exciting to me, with a background in film, um, what some of the creators were able to do with the new technology of VR uh, and augmented reality, which was a little bit more difficult to, to, um, to showcase really story-based augmented reality, but people were doing really exciting things in VR. Uh, and over the years and over the past year or two, I mean, I, I was very interested in uh, expanding even further and making sure that we um, truly lived up to the, the bucket of immersive that we have in Tribeca and allow creators to, to really let their imaginations run wild and then let us try and figure out the best way to, to actually present this work, which can be very challenging, as we know, and I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Can you talk about the, the challenge of the AR part there for a second? Because some of this is like... There's a challenge of the way in which 
I, I, there's probably challenges on the curation side, I would imagine, sure. and challenges in terms of how you're actually going to exhibit what the work is. And I'd be interested on the historical note of how, as you're alluding to, seeing an evolution sure. of this technology. Sure. I mean, w when I think about, you know, when I first started uh, programming immersive work in 2014, uh, headsets just weren't available. So the idea of being able to curate a full program of virtual reality without actually having virtual reality headset available was, you know, it was, it was not very easy. So it was a lot of travel. It was a lot of kind of, um, you know, begging and borrowing, no stealing. Uh, definitely, you know, visiting people's studios and getting a chance to see things and kind of start to understand also what it was like to see this work in progress, uh, because I was very familiar with how to watch a film in progress, you know, that's a work in progress and be understanding of color correction and all of those kind of things. But it's very different when you're seeing something and it's something that's meant to be a fully immersive world and it's more of an animatic and you kind of have to let your mind make that jump and give that trust to the creator that they're going to get to the place that they're telling you they're going to get. Um, but that said, I, th I think that you know, virtual reality very quickly uh, got there. And then there was a moment where everyone was kind of uh, focused. When I say everyone, I think the press and the audience, were, they were very focused on what's next and is augmented reality next. Everyone got very excited by the fact that, you know, you have a phone in your pocket and this is a, a very accessible tool for AR. So how can we showcase that? And um, to, to just back it up a little bit, right? So when I, when I did first start, curating. It was all true curation. It was all travel to find these projects and seek these projects out. Uh, ultimately, when headsets did become available um, to the public and not just to people who had like, a, you know, a, a DK1, um, it, we, we were able to open for submissions. And we got, you know, maybe I'd say about a, a hundred submissions that first year that we were able to open. But each year, um, it's just grown and grown, which is very exciting to see. Uh, with AR, back to that, so with AR, uh, I was really looking for um, a creator that was kind of unlocking something that could be very compelling narratively uh, with augmented reality. Um, and I just, to be honest, wasn't really seeing as much. I was seeing beautiful work that could have been more in, at home in the context of fine art, uh, but less in the context of storytelling. And I think what really cracked the code for me was a couple of years ago, we had um, an amazing uh, young creator. His name's Asad Malik. And he made a piece called Terminal 3. Has in, is anyone familiar with that piece? Yeah, so, so Asad was a, a creator that I was really interested in because uh, I had seen this piece that he had done uh, called holograms from Syria, where he had just taken um, actual photographs of the Syrian conflict, and then he, he, through a HoloLens, he basically placed these images in the most mundane spaces in his dorm. So it was like in the common room, um, there is a woman and child running for their lives, you know, and that was like super... Uh, compelling to me, the idea that you could, you could put something that's so incongruous 
into the space and create something out of it. And it really becomes an interpretive story. But, but uh, when I met him, he said, I've been interviewing people with depth kit, so with volumetric capture, and uh, I've been interviewing specifically uh, Muslim immigrants um, and Muslim immigrants who travel and have had a lot of difficulty because he himself was having exactly that kind of difficulty. And um, it was a great, you know, great start to a, to a project, but it was really the context that twisted into a, a story. He, he ultimately built a, uh, a set that mimicked an airport and made you the um, TSA agent who then interrogated the Muslim travelers and made a decision. So it was a, an interaction with conversive. He used Kevin Cornish's conversive, uh, where you would be the one to speak aloud to, to these people with total volumetric capture, and you get the presence of them sitting there on a stool across from you, and you make the decision of whether or not they can come into your country or not. Uh, and then even more compelling, he had those actual subjects there secretly so that after you had that interaction with the holographic representation of them and you made that decision privately in your own mind, you were then confronted with the real person and had an opportunity to, yeah, to talk to them or not, which some people just totally froze and got stuck. Um, so, so that was something where I thought, okay, so... There, there are different things that, that can happen now with AR, with mixed reality, with um, live actors, which we've, uh, we had definitely been dabbling with a bit, like uh, with Jordan Tannehill's Draw Me Close, etc. Uh, and as these pieces continued to evolve, I think it was really interesting to us and challenging to us to try to figure out exactly how to house them. And that's what I was kind of alluding to before, is that it's... It's very different uh, thinking about a VR, a room scale VR experience that only technically requires a 12 by 12 box versus something that requires an intricately designed set and a live performer and things to hit at exactly the right time. Uh, And for this to be something that you can actually uh, share with an audience in an effective way and maximize throughput and allow for people to, to come in there and have an experience where they feel satisfied, like they've gotten their money's worth and they've also gotten some groundbreaking work put in front of them. When you, you make a film, by the time you're getting into a festival environment, you're kind of winding down, right? You still have to deal with a lot of anxiety in terms of if, if, if it's independent work and are you going to sell it and, and so forth and so on and how you deliver it and, and all those things and put that aside but for a moment. But the reality of some of this work is that it's actually ramping up. How do you leave room for the work that really is pushing at that edge that maybe you haven't actually seen the form before? Right. You know, like how you were talking about flying and having to go to where a headset was like being able to kind of like being able to take the leap and say, oh, this thing is going to actually happen. Right. Like because there was there was a time with where there's smoke where we had no idea of whether it was going to happen. I I sat down here and I said, well, if I can raise the money, we might be able to do it. Right. And and we held off on some of the stuff that we communicated about it being in the festival. Right. Right. Because it was like at a certain point, well, maybe we won't get there. 
you know, which would have been bone crushing, but it was the I truth. Had, I had a feeling we, you would get there, though. I really did. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> we were being very cautious about it, and rightfully so. I mean, it, it costs a lot of money to, to, uh, to put this work up, and it wasn't something that was very easy uh, for, for you and in terms of fundraising and in terms of um, us just, you know, being, being able to work with you and work with the space and make sure that it was, uh, you know, what, what, what we hoped it could be. Thank you. It's very kind that you would say that you would you you felt like I was gonna I was gonna get there, but but I think it's the reality too of like the the challenge that you have from a curation standpoint and the challenge that from a practitioner standpoint in terms of working in terrain where you're like okay what is this actual form how do I actually describe it well it's not this it's not this it's not this it's this and now you have to imagine what it is and then having to be able to try to communicate that to audiences and the challenges that you face in terms of the structure. Of, of a festival and the behavior like I remember when I did a project that was at Sundance years ago it was called Pandemic 1.0 and I thought I'm going to make it so anybody can come into this anytime they want they can drop in and out of it it's going to be awesome you know you can just come anytime and then I was like oh god that was horrible that was really stupid uh, there's a whole s- uh, psychological kind of behavior thing about like running times tickets you know, going and, and seeing these things that is ingrained to anybody who is a festival audience, right? Yeah. So it also, the throughput is interesting because it's totally different. And I know that that's something that you and other festivals are trying to figure out as much as it is the, the, being on a practitioner side, trying to figure out like what's the right amount of people for an experience? How do you know? What's too many? When do you push back and say, no, we can't push any further? Not Not that you ever said any of this or Tribeca did, but I've been in other places where people constantly want to ratchet up the throughput. You know, they like, can we get more people in? Can we get more people in? Can you shorten what the experience is? Can you truncate it? And it's like, okay, well, there are these moments that are designed specifically within this flow of what this experience is. And it's kind of like when you work and you, um, when you're working and you're doing a cut on something and you do a test screening for a film, right? And everybody's like, oh God, that's so slow. That part's so slow. And then you're like, oh, I guess I should cut it. I should trim it down. I should make it faster. And then you realize, oh, it's slow because the scene before it didn't have the information that it needed or there was something lacking on the other side of it. So all these things are like intricate, like little house of cards. I think the festivals are really critical for this type of work to be seen um, and to give the opportunity for the work to actually be critiqued, because that's the other part that's incredibly difficult, is to get somebody who will actually come and critique what the actual work is, right? Like, and to really, really critique it in a way that you can see these things, because sometimes when you create something, you don't even see it when you've made it, and it's drawn from these other influences that you weren't even paying attention to, or maybe you were. You, you act like it was your own when it wasn't, or whatever. But this idea that that ability to allow audiences to experience it. That's what's so nice about what wall play does on their corridor. It's open to anybody who wants to walk into those spaces, right? So it's accessible. So a lot of those challenges, I think, are interesting in terms of, like, how do you shape the work? How do you put the work out into the world? And then how can you allow people to experience it and then be able to have others who can write about it and kind of unpack it and, and, and point to the legacy of where it comes from. Like I teach a, I'm going to call out Rob King. I teach with Rob King in the back of the room and we teach a new media uh, art class. And I love teaching with Rob because I, I teach the practice part. Rob teaches the theory part. And when we go in the class, I'm always like, oh, 
wow, I didn't know about that. Or that's really cool. Or, oh, wow, I could see this now and I see this other thing. And I think to the point of where Terminal 3 worked for you and and that idea of the emotional resonance, like I think the more that people can realize like this builds on a legacy of all these other things that came before it, you know, and the value of that I think is critical. So I think the curation part is important. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's tucked into what I was just talking about. There's the the value of the curation. Mm -hmm. There's the challenge of actually putting this into a space and allowing people to interact with it. And just wondering, you know, if you have any thoughts based upon any of that. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts (laughs) based on, especially, just the challenge of exhibiting this type of work because, okay, at a, especially in a film festival context, like it's, it's so simple to say, okay, we, we're programming this festival and at 2.30 the film starts, there are 135 seats. Here we go. Let's go. Doors open. It's totally different when we're programming Tribeca Immersive because we're thinking about, okay, how many square feet do we have to fill? How many experiences are we able to present? How much space does each of these experiences need? What's the runtime of, of each experience? How many headsets if it's a VR experience or how many people can participate in this? How many people can we let into the entire room to make it so that everybody isn't pissed at us at the end of the experience and saying, I didn't get to see anything because everything was full, which still happens even with all of the math that we do in the lead up to to the festival, just because, you know, part of it is based on human behavior, too. You know, our we've we've developed our system year after year. We always reiterate on on what we what we how we organize it. Right. So we the way that it's modeled now and it's been modeled this way for the last couple of years is it's a three hour block where. Um, a set number of people can come in and experience as much as they can within that three hours. And this was also really interesting as it related to, uh, to where there's smoke because we wanted people to discover the piece when they came into the virtual arcade. So that was something that we said, all right, well, we'll hold you know, a 10 by 10 space for Lance so that there's something, there's some sort of a satellite experience where people can get a tease of what they're going to get when they get the full uh, 45-minute experience. Um, But like I said, it's human behavior. Some people run in, and even though they know that they can't possibly see everything when they're there, instead of picking and choosing, they run to every single kiosk and sign their name up and you know it makes it a difficult experience for for everyone so it's it's all about scripting that and letting people know like we want you to see as many things as you can but you can't see them all so please choose wisely do your research before you get there that kind of stuff um and then also we don't want to we don't want to to do anything to compromise the work so i know that you know when we first started there were a lot of times where the the ceilings were shattering every day where it's like okay every piece is around five to seven minutes when it comes to vr and then next thing you know like someone's like oh this is a 20 minute piece and it's like oh 20 minute piece what are we gonna do and then this is a 45 minute piece oh my god like this is gonna ruin everything but we had to kind of move with it and figure out what you know what way it could work i mean i think the 
all creators are having a learning as well at the same time. I think that's what's so exciting about the immersive um, community is that between the, the curators and exhibitors uh, and distributors and creators, we're all figuring it out at the same time. Um, for example, we had a, a, a piece called Jack, which was, uh, it took about 30 by 30 like a yeah a 30 by 30 foot space out of the arcade which was pretty giant for for us and um it was a one person experience where you had a 20 minute live theatrical interaction with a with an actor and it was so worth it even though you're doing all this you know what afterwards we we wanted to extend it and we did the math of like how much would this cost exactly and we realized it's about $700 per participant to go to go in there we said well no we can't do that we can't make you know it just doesn't work the way uh the way that we were trying to to extend it but those things are really um important you don't want to i don't want to be able to i don't want to say anything to the creator about what they should do with the timing of their piece or how they should increase i of course i want more people to see the work but not at the expense of the work uh and i think with with Where There's Smoke, this is something that was, obviously the intimacy was what was so important about it and it was so carefully designed. And I think also it's being able to see, see something like this allows you to then explain later on when you see something that's brand new. And I had seen your work before. I think it was really helpful for me having been at IDFA and had dinner with Frankenstein AI, which I thought was just a brilliant piece and like also like pushing at the edges of, of intimacy and what, what people w are willing to share with each other. And then when I saw what you were willing to share with this piece, well, that's, you know, it's like a no-brainer to me to make that possible or try to provide a platform for it. You know, in terms of being able to see the work, to, to, to measure it back to something else or to give it context, right? So that's on a curation side where you're actually traveling. You're seeing all this work. The challenge then is like for the audience side, you know, like what are they going to step into? What are they? What are they comparing it to? What are, what are they? What, how are they evaluating it or thinking about it? Because um, there were definitely some pain points when we did some of the stuff and we bridged into the ticketing side, mm -hmm. where we were down Canal. We were only four minutes away from the location, and uh, there were there were a couple. There were two times where only one person showed up. And then we just modified and we ran it for one person. It was really electric and it was awesome. Yeah. And the person was blown away by it um, in terms of that experience. It was really interesting to see how that worked. But then after that, we just started overselling all of it. So it was like, okay, we can make it work for one. We can make it work for three. We can make it work for four. We can make it work for five. We can make it work for six. You know, and we just adjusted to that in real time with what it was. And there were some interesting takeaways for me in terms of it. Which one do I think operated the best i think it was so dependent upon the group of people that were there and 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 you saw different people who stepped up in personalities and, and how they interacted with each other within that environment that it was interesting to explore all those different incarnations of it in some ways you know the title of tonight is really about this idea of conversational mechanics and this balance of story and interactivity to 
to us, when we're thinking about conversational mechanics, there's this whole other side where it feels like the pendulum is swinging, like it's going from what it was to kind of create immersive work where people come to that immersive work and they, they engage and they're voyeuristic within it. They engage, they pick something up, they move around the ways that they want to. And then you're just seeing more and you saw it within, uh, you know, with, uh, with a bunch of the different work that was in uh, the arcade, you know, with uh, Civil War, which I'll call out uh, because uh, Ava was in that as well. But that idea where performers are now there, there's sets that are being built, there's construction in and around it, and it, it's, um, it's like the shift. So I, I wonder, and you're seeing more of it even in the haptics with VR, you're seeing it more in terms of what Jessica was doing with her piece where people were out and they were kind of moving around and, and light, yeah. yeah, into the light and trying to, to, to work with it there. So I'm just wondering, can you talk about the participatory side of it? Can you talk about what that's like in terms of what you're seeing? And cause I would love to draw from you because you spend a lot of time going and looking at this work all over the world. What are some of the things that you're seeing that you're excited by? What are some of the things that you're maybe some trends that you see that are emerging? Or and, and and maybe kind of leading into where you would like to see the Tribeca immersive head to. Yeah, definitely what you just called out in terms of um, just more unclassifiable work, uh, work that maybe still might incorporate a headset, might not, um, but is blending a lot of different um, types of storytelling. So. Uh, Primarily, I'd say like immersive theater is something that is really kind of emerging as uh, as an interesting element to all of these different technological advancements. And I think part of that is also having to do with where we are with um, with the technology and with the adoption of the technology. To me, going around and seeing a lot of a lot of work um, is great, and I have all of the headsets like at my office or I have them that I'm carrying around with me. So it's very, you know, you know, it's very accessible to me, but it's not that accessible. And it is sometimes um, daunting to a lot of people to actually make that purchase or uh, just gain that interest to actually say, I want to have this hardware. So I think that's why a lot of creators are looking at these types of options of okay, well, we're going to make it so that this is an experience that can't be duplicated at home and you're going to have to come to uh, a location to, to have it, whether it's a festival or a museum um, or you know, a standalone space like The Void or something like that. You know, we had War Remains this, this year, which was kind of um, you know, a fully, fully immersive uh, set where... This, everything in a physical set was matched to the virtual environment. So when you walked around and picked things up, they were actually there. Um, and it was a, a reenactment of a battle in World War I. So it was a very uh, visceral experience, right? And all the way from that to even something like uh, the key that Celine did, which um, is primarily happening in the headset, but there's an actress that onboards you and you're getting, you have a sound collar on, so you're having kind of this prelude before you even put a, a headset on, and you're feeling that level of immersion before you, uh, before you actually put the headset on. And I think those things can be really, really effective. And you were speaking about that before, the idea of onboarding and decompression. And I think that that, when done, uh, when done cleverly and not just done as like, you know, a, a white room 
where you're like, okay, now take a couple deep breaths, have a drink of water and get out of here, get back into the arcade and get back into some other experience that has nothing to do with this world that you've just visited. Um, it can be really, really, really uh, exceptional when it's, when it's done well. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a trend or, or a movement that I'm seeing. And I think that that's probably going to continue even, even if the headsets uh, become adopted more widely. Just because uh, with creators like yourself, like, you want your imagination to have no boundaries. And in order to truly do that, you know, you, you have to kind of let it run wild and see what can happen with it. And I love, like, that's why you have, like, somebody like Nick, right, who can, can provide those, those possibilities of interaction. I think that those things, like, that's one thing that was very interesting to me coming from a film background and starting to work closely with creators and developers was to see what that relationship uh, was like, you know, that they're all, everything is interchangeable. Every creator is, is a developer. Every developer is a creator and they're working hand in hand to solve these problems to really just in service of story. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Does that answer your question? Yeah, and I'm wondering about the future. Like, where, where, what huh. do you want to see happen with Tribeca Immersive? Do, you know, like, is there any desire for it to spill out of the Absolutely. And into other places? Absolutely. I mean, I think... You know, space is a very difficult uh, element of exhibiting this work. And that's, you know, I was very excited by the prospect of being able to provide a platform for where there's smoke because this shows that people can actually, people will actually follow the work and they don't have to be uh, stuck in one space, even though, you know, the space that we design is really beautiful and we design it to be immersive so that you can be in there for three hours and really have a good time, even if you're not uh, in an experience. But being able to go outside and also being able to make it more accessible to different communities is even more important. I think that, you know, there's one thing, I think that at Tribeca, it's, um, it is fairly accessible as long as you can you know get a ticket it's 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 a forty dollar ticket um i i think it's and and we put them on sale and they're totally like you go to the website and get it just like you would for any uh traditional film but i think there's still a certain element of getting people into something that they think that they might not be a part of and being able to have a, a piece on canal or multiple pieces on canal where people can just discover it as they're walking by is crucial to the growth of the work and the growth of the medium. Um, and that's why I like, you know, what, what they, what they're doing at while playing on canal is really exciting to me. Cause it was something that literally I, I did not know about the organization, even though they were incubated at new Inc and they have, we have a lot of friends in common. I didn't know about it at all until um, I was walking, going to lunch one day and I'm like, what the hell is that? There's like projection mapping in one of the spaces. So of course, like I wander in, what is, what's going on? And they're like, oh, these are our pop-ups. And then the next week, a friend of mine said, oh, I have a, a pop-up, a museum of digital art uh, is popping up at Wallplay. And I started seeing more and more things. And I was really excited when you had already been having these conversations about them and about the possibility of, um, of working with them. And they're like, like you said, they're four minutes away from our main space so 
I hope that we are able to continue to expand uh, the notion of what Tribeca Immersive is and give creators more of a, an open landscape and not, um, not necessarily keep them boxed in to the space that we have had for these years. And we'll see how it works. I mean, we're definitely working towards continuing to do things like that in 2020. Oh, thank you, Lauren, for taking the time to thank talk with us today. Thank Thanks for listening. If you're interested in exploring new forms and functions of storytelling, make sure to check out Columbia DSL's new prototyping community. You can find out more information at digitalstorytellinglab.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Columbia University School of the Arts Digital Storytelling Lab. Special thanks to Peter English for composing our theme.